0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Listen In. I'm Kevin Lavangi.
1: I'm Karina Mickelson.
0: And we're here today to talk about Charles Yale Harrison's Meet Me on the Barricades. Uh, we're going to do as good of a job as we possibly can.
1: Um, <laughs> Not the best job, but as good as we can.
0: We, we can just start with the caveat that this is, I would say it's a difficult read, but it is, it's is—it's difficult to discuss just yes. because its it has a lot of uh, polyvocality going on, we'll say. No, yes, uh, we'll, we'll good term. This,
1: yeah. Yeah. So, this novel, Meet Me on the Barricades, recounts a few days in the life of P. Herbert Simpson, a middle aged, weak hearted oboist with the New York Symphony Orchestra and a leftist fellow traveler uh, during the Spanish Civil War. So, this book takes place in 1937? 1938? I think so, yeah. Around then. Simpson is subject to wild hallucinations that are sometimes daydreams, sometimes drunken delirium, and sometimes intricate dreams while well asleep. In these dreams and hallucinations, he escapes his unrewarding marriage into a passionate fantasy of a Russian girlfriend and escapes his day job in the symphony to fight on the front lines of the Spanish Civil War. Harrison's novel is a unique book, significant for its self-consciousness as a modernist novel and a political document. Mimi on the Barricades is a densely elusive text that layers global politics, revolutionary theory, classical music, literary theory, world history, and anti-Stalinism. So, Kevin, how would you describe this novel? <laughs>
0: well, here in our notes, we say it uses kind of extensive segments of quotation and pastiche. Mm-hmm. And quotation it, from other documents. Yeah, and that it, it's that's what's mm-hmm. most interesting about this. I guess when we were preparing the document to be, or the text, I guess, to be re-released a, a couple of years ago, that was what was really interesting about the, our job as research assistants, was going through and identifying which characters were Explicitly real people, which ones were very clearly based on real people with a thin veneer of anonymity <laughs> to prevent from uh, protect Harrison from lawsuits, and then figuring out which long quotations from these characters were actually things that they had written. Mm-hmm. So we'll talk about this a bit later, but Earl Browder in particular, who was the leader of the Communist Party in the United States during this period, he gets quoted at length from kind of his his writings in nineteen thirty two and then his writings in nineteen thirty seven, and they're pretty much irreconcilable, which is where like a lot of the comedy comes from and a lot of the satirical content comes from.
1: Yeah, so rather than just quoting from the text, Harrison writes a dialogue in which nineteen thirty two Browder and nineteen thirty seven. Nineteen thirty seven Browder talk to each other or talk mm-hmm. to other people over each other yeah. so that they're both like embodied people who are on Totally different discursive planes.
0: Wearing different outfits. Yeah, uh, their interaction ends with 1937 Browder beating
1: 1932 Browder <laughs> to death. Oh, uh, I don't remember. Yeah, that. Yeah. this is a short book, but there's so much that I cannot. Possibly yeah, it's only what hundred pages, yeah. something
0: like that. Anyway, yeah, there's there's more than you could, more than we could talk about in this one. Guess, yeah. So we can.
1: It was originally published in 1938, and we put out a new edition. What 2015, 2016? maybe
0: the, the years that i've worked on this project have all blended into one in my yeah, head yeah we put uh,
1: out a new edition recently and by we i mean it, <laughs> and by we i mean it was uh edited by bart Vitor and emily robin sharp and that kevin was one of the research assistants on that project <laughs> and i was nearby when it all happened <laughs> i didn't really with everybody yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this book is very funny. So when we've been working on it, we're also releasing a teaching module for anybody brave enough to teach it. Mm-hmm. We've been reading quotes out loud to each other and every time I pick it up, like my eye falls on a hilarious quote.
0: <laughs> and we it's freely accessible on the Spanish Civil War.ca website. Uh, if you get a chance to read the book, though, you definitely should. It's, again, short, extremely funny. Uh, if you kind of have a it's it's especially funny if you have an appreciation for like left-wing history and the minutiae of kind of the debates going on at the time between the popular front and the trotskyists and that sort of thing and, and mm-hmm. all of these arguments that are playing out and sometimes on the streets of, of barcelona yeah. <laughs> in a violent way so
1: but even if you don't have an understanding of those intricacies Harrison's just a funny writer, Mm. and you can find many things to laugh at (laughs) without understanding the context of And we spent
0: a summer writing out all these explanatory notes in the back. Um,
1: So yeah, there's there's a lot of tools in our new edition to help you enjoy the book.
0: Charles Yale Harrison was an author, journalist, and leading figure of the literary left in New York in the 1930s. He was born in Philadelphia, but was raised in Montreal, which is how we've managed to claim him as a Canadian. (laughs) He... He uh, began working as a journalist at 16, but soon after he enlisted in the Canadian Expeditionary Force and was shipped off to Europe, where he fought in France. His experience in the First World War uh, inspired his best-known novel, Generals Die in Bed, which was published in 1930. He eventually moved to New York, where he worked as a journalist and public relations consultant. Though he seemingly never joined the Communist Party, Harrison was active in some of its cultural associations and worked as a contributing editor for the renowned New York-based magazine New Masses. He was involved in the founding of the United States' uh, John Reed Clubs in 1929, an organization named for the radical U.S. journalist who covered the Russian Revolution. Uh, his 10 days that shook the world is also worth reading. It's not funny at all. John said Reed, yeah, okay. yeah. The clubs were put together by the Communist Party to provide space for politically inclined re- writers to meet and collaborate. Harrison was later expelled from the clubs. Oops. Uh, apparently for openly criticizing the USSR's treatment of Leon Trotsky's daughter. So that, that'll come up a bit later when we talk about the political content of the novel and how that relates to what we're kind of projecting Harrison's own politics to be.
1: Yeah, so the John Reed's clubs, would those have been analogous to the progressive arts clubs that were popping up in Canada in the 1930s?
0: I think so. I think that the the John Reed clubs were m- more specifically literary in their content like it was really for like prose Uh, i could be wrong there but yeah whereas uh,
1: the progressive arts club i feel like they often focused on poetry and drama
0: yeah and i think whenever i think of the progressive arts club i think of drama but again that's that might just be my drama (laughs) that too when the john reed clubs got i don't even know what you want to call it disbanded i guess when there was kind of the change in in strategy towards the popular front that alienated a lot of the the writers mm-hmm. who were associated with uh, the Communist Party, so I think Harrison probably didn't like that very much.
1: Yeah.
0: I think um yeah. Richard Wright and Ralph Ellison were also tangled up in that i mm-hmm. I, I know both of them had you know uh, breaks with the Communist Party at various times for various yeah. reasons, but uh, you know I imagine that the loss of the clubs was probably a, a pretty big reason for a lot of the writers of the period.
1: Mm-hmm. So Harrison is best known for his 1930 anti-war novel General's Dying Bed, which follows a Canadian soldier fighting in World War I. General's Dying Bed was controversial for its frank depictions of violence and its unsavory view of the Canadian and British military. It features Canadian soldiers looting the French town of Arras and committing war crimes against German soldiers. There's little heroism to be found in this in this book. As soldiers of both sides prove themselves to be both brutal and cowardly and commanding officers are represented as manipulative. General's Dying Bed was a deeply serious stripped down and modernist work which contrasts sharply with the satire of Meet Me on the Barricades. But even within Meet Me on the Barricades there are moments when satire gives way to something unfunny and Harrison's anti-war commitments come to the foreground. And General's Dying Bed is also a very short but very good book which I really recommend reading. It's a very horrific it's a very similar... It reminded me a lot of All Quiet on the Western Front by Eric Maria Romarque, but perhaps more brutal. And there was a lot of backlash from the Canadian military and Canadians in general when it came out. Because even though it is fictional, it is fictionalizing some real events during the war which cast the Canadian military in a terrible light. Yeah. Harrison struggled with a heart condition throughout his life, which inspired his 1949 self-help book, Thank God for My Heart Attack, and he died quite young. What are we going to say about this book?
0: <laughs> I mean, we were, there's kind of the interesting question, I guess, right out of the gate about who Simpson, like the main the main character, is, is what sort of uh, trend within kind of leftist circles is he meant to represent? Mm-hmm. In some ways, I think it's kind of the limits of what we would call like fellow travelerism—the way in which people who are uncommitted, it, it, in this specific context, it means people who are you know sympathetic to the the Communist Party's aims but not actually a, a member of the party. Trotsky actually writes about this a fair bit in his uh, his text, uh, "Literature and Revolution," and it's interesting that he really focuses in on the idea of the fellow traveler as a kind of the non-proletarian author who's really sympathetic to the, the aims of the workers' movement but not actually aligned to it. And, and he has the observation that uh, as regards to a fellow traveler, the question always comes up, how far will he go? This question cannot be answered in advance, not even approximately. The solution of it depends not so much on the personal qualities of this or that fellow traveler, but mainly on the objective trend of things during the coming decade. Um, this book sort of contradicts that a little bit, I think, in the sense that Simpson is really, like, his personal failings are numerous and uh, of particular focus for the book, but I do think that it's interesting to think about how he's representative of the larger kind of middle class, Mm -hmm. petty bourgeois, intelligentsia, whatever, however many different kind of, like, epithets or, or descriptors you want to attach. It's more interesting, I guess, to read the book in terms of him as his failings as, as reflective of the failings of this movement and the failings mm-hmm. of the the workers movement as a whole or the left wing movement as a whole because i think Harrison is like really sharply critical of it throughout
1: yeah which is interesting like is there any character or thing in this book that Harrison isn't sharply critical of like is there anything that he kind of like stands for or stands by
0: that comes up in the two characters who Simpson, like, spends that night drinking with.
1: The one is Escazo, the Spanish violinist. Mm
0: -hmm. And then the other is Daryl. So Daryl's this newspaper man who is very cynical, used to be a leftist, covered the Russian Revolution. I would say that uh, Harrison's not very critical of either of those characters at the same time as, like, they kind of throw each other's various...
1: Yeah, they're critical of each other. Yeah, too.
0: and they throw each other's shortcomings into into relief, I guess, yeah. similar to the rest of this book. But <laughs> the, those are the two characters that I would say are, are the closest to Harrison's sort of own voice kind of shining through. Mm-hmm. And yeah, both of them are very familiar with the left, cynical to a fault about its prospects and about its... Hypocrisies, I guess. That like this book is all about the hypocrisies of the orca has left in the nineteen thirties, and those two characters are very much preoccupied with with the shortcomings and hypocrisies.
1: Yeah, another thing that Harrison is definitely is is anti war. Like mm -hmm. that's one politics politic it's one viewpoint that you can kind of locate across this book. And I remember one of the really interesting things about General Steinbed is that it presents a very anti-capitalist reading of war and it critiques the First World War in terms of exploitation of soldiers as laborers, which is not something that many (laughs) war books and war stories do. Do you have any thoughts on like how his anti-warness kind of comes out in this novel?
0: Yeah, I think that the specific hypocrisies of I, I keep focusing on Browder just because he's kind of yeah, this. Yeah, he's a major character yeah, in this book. Um, and his his specific hypocrisies that I think really uh, come to light are his alignment with like the U.S. You know, Eisenhower hadn't military-industrial complex at this point, but he yeah. is all of a sudden he's he's mobilizing all of this goodwill that like communist organizing has built up towards yeah. like beating a war drum, effectively. Yeah, and that I think really disgusts Harrison. I don't know if you would. Who would have called himself a pacifist? I don't know if you know that's really a fair descriptor, but I do think that there's a there's a revulsion at war, yeah. even if it's seen as necessary at certain t- points. And mm-hmm. I think that the idea that you're going to lose sight of that in order to focus on the kind of heroism that so preoccupies Simpson in his daydreams, yeah, uh, like that's I think that's a really kind of nasty, yeah, uh...
1: yeah. So Simpson dreams of himself as a heroic. Soldier all the time, and a Mm -hmm. heroic like leader of other soldiers, um, who can kind of boy up the men around him. Mm -hmm. Like one of them's having a crisis of courage, and he's there to uh, boost his morale. Um, But at the end of this book, his fantasy gets away from him, right? And he's just a soldier being moved along, getting lost, getting shot. Yeah, so it becomes horrifying instead of heroic. And I think just the, the side of the war that Harrison experienced was the horrifying side,
0: right? And I think that that's like his—he's obviously anti-war, but like more specifically, he's like anti-militarism, and that's what really mm-hmm. upsets him. I think about this yeah. this period is that there's this—you know—the left is indulging in the same sort of fantasies of, mm-hmm. of youthful heroism, of martyrdom, of self-sacrifice, of, mm-hmm. of all this stuff that. Yeah, the, well, I guess one of my favorite lines comes from Asazio, where he's saying like, "Heroism is not a left wing virtue. It's <laughs> bravery is not a left wing virtue. Like these are these can be equally mobilized by by fascists, yeah. by feudal knights, by the <laughs> yeah. dying for your cause is not necessarily a good thing. It can be, but it doesn't not necessarily something to be."
1: Which is something that this time of better have kind of struggles with as well. Mm-hmm.
0: But still, definitely falls into the the celebration of yeah. the like camaraderie at the front and all that
1: stuff.
0: Yeah. Also, with this book, there's more than a hint of self-parody as well. Just yeah. because I have, I have here. You know, when Lennon asks what it's to be done, it's hard to imagine him being satisfied with the "I started a literary magazine" as a response, and that's <laughs> sort of Harrison's response to a, like. To my knowledge, he worked on some political campaigns and did some writing and, and did some some organizing, but he wasn't like primarily an organizer. He was mostly a, a writer and literary critic. So there's definitely that sort of acknowledgement that what he's doing here is not a real, <laughs> or not a super important political intervention, I guess.
1: Yeah. So in one of his fantasies, Simpson is imagining like leading the troops into battle in Spain, and I'm going to quote a little bit here. He says, enthralled by the grandeur of the artillery concert, he fails to observe for a moment that his men have started to attack without him. <laughs> Abashed, he hurries after them. <laughs> Nonchalantly, he takes his place at their head, leading the advance. And then there's this moment when the pages of a dozen war novels flutter in his mind. And he refers to specific images. So the corpse of Kemmerich, broadbent, reclined in a shell crater. Rats stepping daintily onto Paolochi's chest. And those are moments, those are actual characters from *All Quiet on the Western Front, General's Dying Bed. I don't know what that their thought is. And I find that interesting for the fact that he's read these anti-war war novels. Yeah. And they're coming into his rogue fantasy in like kind of horrifying ways, like p- putrescence and rats and uh, that very cowardly scene for Broadbent and General's Dying Bed. Anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, he spends is. a lot of time daydreaming, but he is not the winner in his danger.
0: No, and there's constant intrusions. This is, yeah, the very funny part where he's uh, taking part in a military parade in one of his fantasies. And then he goes, oh my God, this is rank militarism or something he's realizing. <laughs> and then and then he goes, oh, but wait, it's like, this is the People's Army. And then like all of a sudden the the bunting is replaced with like red flags. And, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, all the, the various names for the for the battalions that are marching down the street are like the Sacco and Vanzetti battalion. and yeah. like all... <laughs>
1: Yeah. yeah, and he has a mistress in his fantasies, this Russian woman, Natasha, mm-hmm. who in one of his fantasies cheats on him, and he's really upset by it, and it's like something he, he's in, like, he's the one daydreaming, but he is not in control, and she kind of throws in his face the logic he uses to, like, mentally cheat on his wife, right. which is that, like, she has sexual urges. Right,
0: we're all just animals, we're all just filled with, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's um,
1: and that is, like, a, a comment on his hypocrisy. Critical, like views on sexuality. <laughs> for sure, for
0: sure. Well, and just like it's made clear throughout that like he's both, yeah, obsessed with this like this kind of fantasy life, and and he's uh, and he's obsessed with Natasha, but he also is such a prude, like, like yeah. such a like a middle class prude, like through and through, and that like that's a recurring issue. I think more subtle than most of the other critiques in this book is like the issue of his misogyny and just like his relationship to his wife yeah, um, who is simultaneously like portrayed as unsympathetically and as yeah. like the kind of like shrill uh like like she's she very much fits into the like the the stereotype of this, like, and like nagging. right exactly like unattractive all these things yeah. but at the same time she is i would say over like there are a couple of scenes where you get a more intimate look at her inner life where you think about, like, what she signed up for in her marriage, (laughs) like, what kind of life she, like, wants to have, and the way in which Simpson is, like, dismissive and just kind of nasty and lives in his own head all the time.
1: Yeah, Uh, and she thinks very carefully what he means when he says he's a philosophical anarchist, and she thinks about how she understands the term anarchy and how she understands the term philosophical, and she, like has read up on these things mm-hmm. and thought critically about them mm-hmm. and like can't make sense of them yeah. because he <laughs> is <incoherent>. really, like <laughs> he's incoherent in his views and I think it's really interesting that she is trying to do that mm-hmm. but definitely yeah <laughs> well they play
0: there's even the, the just the whole episode where they pl- they're playing cards the neighbors have come over to play cards and simpson just refuses to participate and he goes upstairs and <laughs> yeah. reads his book by himself
1: like why would we play cards while people are dying yeah and it's like okay go upstairs and read your book well the, and done. he's like
0: rereading the same chapter of the yeah. book about the, the history of the russian revolution for like the 23rd time and yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah we talked a little bit about his misogyny there's some racism in this mm-hmm. book
0: another more subtle i would say again but Like like in terms of the critique of that is is not like the pride, but it is definitely there. There's a section where he's like concerned or he's he's fantasizing about being Russian and then he's fantasizing about being Spanish. Mm -hmm. And of course he can't, none of his fantasies include the war in China, like the war between the Japanese empire and uh, the Republic of China. And then obviously the communist party mixed in there. Uh, and it, it's very clear because he can't imagine himself as a non-white person. Like there's yeah. just no there's no room in his kind of in his fantasy for that.
1: And even uh, Russianness is kind of pushing mm-hmm. it, which I think is kind of a commentary on how Russia is as much a part of Asia as it is Europe, mm-hmm. right? Like Definitely. that there's this otherness to Russians. So I think he's did we decide he was half Russian? Yeah, yeah, he's half and, Russian,
0: half American in one of his fantasies.
1: Yeah, and his depictions of Russians in his fantasies kind of go back and forth from very cultured in a very like Western European right, sense, well, there's and French spattered, and through. like and yeah, that. and kind of like this savagery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right term for it, but yeah, like I think, I think animalistic, that's... like domination of urges and anger. And, right. Yeah.
0: The East Side novelist later on is talking about the Popular Front, and he's talking about all the racial anxieties that they're going to play on in order to like whip up the the population to like fight in the second world war they're going to scare you know black people with mussolini in in ethiopia and jewish people with hitler and then they're going to scare the american legion which was like this the the canadian legion is not not the equivalent i would say the american legion is almost had some like clan-like elements like they were like sort of a militia and they were regularly known to call, like, be strike breakers and like super anti-communist. Uh, mm-hmm. the, I guess they were kind of like, they were kind of a fascist organization yeah. in some ways, or like proto-fascist. And yeah, and they're going to scare the American Legion with like uh, the Japanese army. We're building an all-inclusive people's front. We accept anybody as long as they're prepared to speak out boldly against man-eating sharks. Like that's his. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the, there's just a real sense that it leads to some collaboration with some very unsavory elements and, and some very racist elements of, mm-hmm. of American society
1: i'm finding it really hard to speak about this book coherently because everything connects to something totally different right. so you were quoting about like him struggling to read a modernist book mm-hmm. because of like the syntax didn't fit his mood or whatever and then i'm like oh that makes me think of this and this and this and this and it's it makes me think of how difficult it was to write a plot summary of it because mm-hmm. there is no like there's no through linear linearity yeah mm-hmm. through line yeah
0: yeah and that and again that's the east that novel's quote was could be put more relevant, like, more specifically into the, the section where we talk about modernism because he's critiquing yeah. Mike Gold's form of, like, proletarian modernism. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's also critiquing the popular front, like, yeah. pretty viciously.
1: Um, <laughs> this is a modernist novel, and we've said it was self-consciously modernist. And it shifts its form at various points so chapter 10 is very different from the other chapters Mm -hmm. it's done as a kind of dialogue like you were reading a play Mm -hmm. kind of and it's heavily influenced by james joyce's ulysses Mm -hmm. which i cannot speak to that much Uh (laughs) but uh, there is a kind of when we say self-conscious i feel like There's this self-consciousness about engaging in modernist techniques, Mm -hmm. and whether or not they are useful at this time, or what is the most effective modernist technique, while also he is deliberately and continuously using things like juxtaposition and illusion and experimentation, while also kind of being (laughs) unsure about where this book fits in in terms of high art and mass culture. Am I making any sense? Yeah, I think that sounds right. So if we're talking about high modernism, um, the concept that a lot of people go back to is the Great Divide, Um, and Andreas Hussein defined the Great Divide as the kind of discourse which insists on a categorical distinction between high art and mass culture, and that's a quote from Andreas Hussein. So people like James Joyce and T.S. Eliot kind of saw their high art as separate from mass culture... And were much more experimental in their aesthetics. They really valued innovation. They put a lot of stock on mythological structures. So using myths to understand or to structure contemporary literature. I'm really making sense right now. But you know what I mean. (laughs) And... uh, High modernism has a like one of the main values or aesthetics that's used is like depersonalization, which I'm not totally understanding in terms of how it would function in this book. Mm-hmm. But when I think about The Wasteland, which is probably like alongside Ulysses, like the example of high modernism, mm-hmm. um, thinking about how Eliot does away with the lyrical eye that is so important to poetry up to that point. And that kind of depersonalizes the poem, right? You're not in anybody's head. You're not feeling anybody's feelings. There's like this kind of distance between you and the poem. Right. Uh, that the lyrical eye tended to collapse. And also a kind of distance between the author and the poem that the lyrical eye kind of tended to conflate, right? Mm-hmm. Do you any thoughts on that? <laughs> I'm really struggling to no, talk I think about that, this. I think, that, I think
0: that all makes sense. I think... Yeah. I think Joyce is a, is a complicated example too, just because there is the like that like there's a particular type of modernism, like Eliot's, that's hyper elitist. Yeah, uh, this has also to do with, I guess, their political commitments. But I would say yeah. Joyce is somewhat on the other end of the spectrum in terms yeah. of this kind of like the reveling in sex, the talking about lower class Dublin, like even yeah. you know. Um.
1: Reveling in like bodily
0: mm-hmm.
1: humor or bodily function, mm-hmm. even just not yeah. not even as a source of humor.
0: Yeah, exactly. But still, like this this real focus on the uh, on this experimental form, and that's yeah. and I guess like the, this book, the Meet Me on the Barricades, tackles the debates that would have been going on inside left wing or communist literary circles at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. It talks about them quite explicitly through the character of the. Eastside novelist who yeah. is a like barely veiled portrayal of Mike Gold, who is a really prominent Communist Party member and writer, um, who wrote the novel
1: Jews Without Money.
0: It, I can't remember. If it was, yeah, Jews Without Money,
1: yeah.
0: uh, which Harrison was not a big f- fan of, as you can <laughs> tell through this. Uh, he's the East Side novelist is talking about his. Like his community his experience of, of growing up poor and Jewish mm-hmm. and you know saying oh the, the agony of it, the suffering of it the three hundred nine pages of it and that's how long Jewishine <laughs> is like there's yeah. the, the book's never mentioned by name, but it's like very clear that's what he's talking about and he, he he's throwing epithets. I think at Simpson. I can't remember who he's arguing with. Someone calls these Side Novels a hack, and then he responds by calling him a Joycean. And like yeah. these are the, <laughs> the worst possible things you could be. It's funny yeah. because the Jews of the Money is not actually like a very good example of strict proletarian literature. Like, yeah, like,
1: but it is an example of social realism, right?
0: So yes it. and no. Okay. It, it's it's a it has a like a, a kind of a magical tinge to it too, okay. and it's also like more pessimistic than you would expect. Like the the brawny proletarian hero story to be. Like, it's it's a much better book than Harrison gives it credit for, I think. But uh, it is it is more fun to make fun of that. Yeah. I mean, it's the point of parody is to exaggerate to the, the point of, you know, lying. Uh, <laughs> something that I, I think is interesting about... I think Elliot's work sort of falls into this category in particular, where, like, the idea that consciousness and uh narrative are difficult to you know at a certain point we're just talking about postmodernism, but but that's i guess a a different a different issue um yeah i I guess what i I should say is is drop that elliot stuff and say that the, the form like at a certain point form itself advances a political argument and this is written about uh quite well by like Two different people on on two different sides of this issue i would say and one of them is uh barbara foley who um is a uh like marxist literary critic who's written a lot about ralph ellison uh, and his work and i mean um invisible man is like the perfect example of this where the forum is advancing a political argument and ellison's arguments basically like subjects are so fractured like there's so we, we know so little how could we possibly be entrusted to like advance a political project that's going to fix the world when we just can barely look after our own selves. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that book's like really sharply critical of the communist party, despite him claiming that it's not about the communist party, which is obvious BS. Um, (laughs) So yeah, but fully I don't know if this is actually about Ellison specifically, but she writes, uh, complexity would come to signify the binary opposite of reductionism, whether leftism in politics, naturalism in writing, or sociology in the study of human politics. And then Lionel Trilling, who was a, like, kind of sort of hard to quantify his his politics, but moderate liberal neocon, sort of, somewhere in there, literary critic. And he wrote that high modernism was a political, sorry, a polemical concept against this sort of reductionism. Mm -hmm. So even in the forum, you're just advancing the, the idea that this is not, like, how could we possibly advance any sort of political project when we can't even figure out how we relate to the world yeah. and how people relate to each other, and yeah. really what's going on at all.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which makes me think that another part of modernism was this kind of disillusionment mm-hmm. that came around mm-hmm. during and after the First World War. Yeah. And that Harrison was a part of, right? He was part of the disillusioned. Definitely. And so. I can see how you see him kind of mapping onto the cynical characters of Daryl and Escaso, because he is disillusioned with the world and finding, trying to find ways to relate to it, right? Right. Um, whereas <laughs> Simpson is disengaged with the world, but idealistic, right?
0: right. Yeah, like, definitely. Yeah. And if these are the options that we're working with, that's not a good situation to be in. Yeah. And yeah, that's And I guess disillusionment so often leads to this kind of like this nihilism yeah. that is almost always like reactionary in content, and particularly in like political content. But I think it often comes from a place of like deep material comfort <laughs> for certain <laughs> people. You know what I mean? Like the yeah. when you when you think about the people who are so preoccupied with you know uh, their own angst, mm-hmm. uh, often the, there are people who are. Yeah, deeply, deeply comfortable in a lot of ways, and and the funniest thing is just, you know, saying washing your hands of politics is one thing, and yeah. I, I would argue that you know that just means that the status quo stays in place. Yeah, and suits you. Yeah, at, where it
1: does not like hurt you. <laughs> exactly,
0: and and at and that's like at best. Yeah. <laughs> at, at worst, it it leads to this sort of political orientation where you think, oh, humans are just so fundamentally rotten that all we could all we can possibly do is like have enough of a sort of like coercive apparatus to keep each other from hurting each other and then everything else can keep people from hurting each other and then everything else can go on as as normal and i mean even harrison sort of by the end of his life i think he was either voting or working for like republican candidates (laughs) in the 40s and 50s and that's a long way from the sort of like (laughs) trotskyist politics of this novel right so there's yeah i guess that's uh, and I, one one more thing we can say about the form, uh, if we want to be a little bit uh, snobby about it, we can talk <laughs> about how it's it is dialectical in a lot of ways, like the way in which he throws these things up for juxtaposition. So in that way, it's kind of like the like uh, Sergei Eisenstein's like montage from the Soviet films of the early twentieth century, where these contradictory or contrasting ideas or images are, are shown together uh, mm-hmm. to great effect. Yeah. Uh, the most obvious section again is. Browder delivering two speeches, one conservative, one revolutionary, and then highlighting that hypocrisy, like the way in which those two things interact. And there is no resolution. There's there's, there's no like, I guess it was really dialectical. You would, you would think, you know, in the the kind of crude dialectics that you, you, that I learned, (laughs) (laughs) uh, is that there would be a resolution where we would find some sort of uh, middle ground between the two, but instead uh, the conservative, you know, part of this equation uh, beats out the revolutionary one.
1: The contradiction you're talking about also makes me think of how chapter 10, the weirdest, longest chapter, is set in this kind of like working class bar mm-hmm. where there's like pornographic drawings on the wall and these three men like drunkenly have a very intellectual conversation while reveling in like the working classiness of it all. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Every once in a while a drunk guy stumbles over and says, we need a dictator in this country. You know, yeah. And stumbles like stumbles away. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I would say, yeah, we talked again a little bit about this, but it is politically that the novel is sort of, like, a lot of the critique of the the Communist Party as it's kind of, or, like, the Communist left as it's organized is anti-Stalinist in a way that is pretty well aligned with, like, Trotskyist points.
1: I'm not, but I do not understand. <laughs> That's a lot of things. We said a lot of things. I think we did say a lot of things, yeah. And if you have not been convinced to read this yet, we should mention that there's zombie Lenin mm-hmm. and syphilitic Hitler or syphilitic Mussolini?
0: Syphilitic Hitler in drag, I think. Okay. Some Maybe it's Mussolini like... in drag. I can't remember. Yeah. But he's these, these are like half-remembered. The the Hitler and Mussolini thing are like half remembered details from news stories and like yellow (laughs) journalism that he once read. So you're getting our our half remembered versions of half remembered (laughs) versions from the book. Yeah,
1: this book is a trip.
0: (laughs) It really is. Yeah, yeah. That was from the chapter where Simpson's having drunken hallucinations and he imagines all of this. If our performance of that doesn't sway you, I don't know what to say.
1: Well, thank you for listening to this mess of an episode Mm -hmm. about this beautiful mess of a
0: novel. Absolutely. And we'll see you on the barricades.
1: Today's episode was produced by Karina Mickelson and Kevin LeVangie and supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. As usual, you can find all of the sources we referenced in today's episode on our website, SpanishCivilWar.ca slash podcast. On our website, you'll also find a little bonus episode from this week in which Kevin and I read a fairly long segment from Charles Yale Harrison's Meet Me on the Barricades. Uh, And it's quite amusing and entertaining, so I suggest you check it out. You can also get in touch with us via our website or on Twitter at CanadaSCW. Uh, We'll be back in two weeks with another episode, so listen in.